You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Somebody say in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I thank God for the confidence that we have and the assurance that we have, not in us, but in Him and His hope and His salvation. Amen. And we can be confident in that tonight. Amen. Everything may not be perfect, but God has everything in control. Amen. Turn to somebody and tell them God's got it all in control. Come on, He's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of me. Amen. And I believe that. Amen. I believe that tonight. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. In the name of the Lord, it's good to be here in the house of the Lord tonight. Sister Burns, is that you I see back there? God bless you. Give her a great big hand. Glad to have you here tonight all the way from Georgia. Amen. We are going to dismiss our children and our youth class tonight. Amen. We're going to dismiss our children and our youth class And thank God for all of our faithful laborers around the church. We have had a busy few days here at CTK. And uh, yesterday, I don't know, about 20-some people, quizzers, were around in the house and had a lot of fun. Good things going on. Uh, Tonight, uh, I need a couple help. Brother uh, uh, Kendall, it's good to have Brother Kendall. I'm glad that Brother Weeks preached such a wonderful message this Sunday and was such a blessing to us. I'm going to have him and and Brother Ryan, if you'll help me out. I have two handouts here tonight. Two handouts tonight. And uh, I have more of the small ones. The the small handout that Brother Ryan has is actually the handout that we're going to be going over. But the handout that Brother Kendall has, I don't have as many printed tonight, so maybe we can just give Brother Kendall, just give one per couple there, maybe. And uh, the handout that Brother Kendall has is some notes that we covered over the last, I think, uh, two or three weeks that we've covered. I think maybe the last two weeks. So the one Brother Kendall has is covering notes for the last two weeks. And tonight we are looking at, uh, we're going to wrap up the subject here of creation Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2, and uh, we are going to just tie some knots here on some loose ends. I think that we could go for maybe weeks and weeks talking about this, exhausting everything, and that is not my intent here tonight. We're just looking at the Word of God, and really our focus is what does the Word say? And there are uh, a lot of things that we could assume, presume, speculate. And we're going to talk about that, look at that a little bit as we have been. And we are in week, I think this would be week number five. Thank you, week number five of this study, Origins, a study of beginnings. And we are looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And we could call this study a lot of things. We're calling it origins, but we could have called it uh, first mentions because in Genesis chapter 1 verse 11 is where we have the first mention of so many big topics, so many things, so many foundational concepts. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look in 
to uh, Genesis chapter 2, where God gets a little bit more detailed on the creation of man. And we're going to look at the topic of humanity and what the Bible has to say about that, what the first mentions of humanity speak to us. And there are some things that are very strong, very plain, very specific. And that concept, as we know today in our culture and our world at large, is massively under attack. Uh, let's say under attack or being challenged or something different is being promoted. Uh, but we're looking tonight at creation and we've been looking under our uh, outline of creation, how and when. So does everybody have the handouts here tonight? The handout that Brother Kendall gave you is the bigger handout and that handout really touches on the points of the last few weeks. So if you miss the last few weeks, that handout will assist you when you go back to listen to those or to watch those. But that handout should not uh, just be left to its own uh, device. You may be able to look at it and recall some things, but it's not uh, a fully, fully thorough, de thorough detail there. And so tonight we're going to look at some things uh, maybe that we're stepping outside of the text a little bit to look a little bit at some scientific presumptions and maybe proofs or challenges to some traditional thoughts to reinforce what the text, what the text says. And we've looked at this a little bit the last few weeks. In fact, if you have your little handout, do we have an extra little handout so I know what you're looking at? Let me come down and grab this. On the back of the handout, on the front, there's some places for you to write in. But on the back of the handout, there's some recommended resources, and I gave those to you. There's a lot more than just these three, but these three are probably the most popular, maybe the most accessible, and have the most material free that you can access. But I want you to go to the next point under recommended resources and ask the question this. This is the question, how old is the earth? How old is the earth? And that's where we're at. Creation, how and when? And we already, I don't know if you can put that, put me back on the monitors just a little bit, Brother Matt. But the text says that there is a six literal day creation. And we looked at that pretty thoroughly, what the text says, Scripture. Number two, the text says that Adam was from the beginning. It doesn't say that Adam came after the beginning or that there were, say, millions and millions and millions of years and then Adam comes. The text says that Adam was from the beginning. We looked at that, how Jesus claimed that from the beginning, Adam was created from the beginning. And then number three, the text tells us, this is scriptural text, tells us, that from the time of Adam to the time of Christ is roughly approximately somewhere around 4,000 years. And the reason why we know that is because Genesis was written as history in our very first lesson. We talked about why that was true, why the Bible affirms that. And we looked at how Adam, uh, or, or, or rather we could go to the text and we could see how the Bible will tell us Adam was such and such years old and he begot and had a son and then he lived so long. So we can take, and it goes from there all the way from Adam to Abraham and then from Abraham all the way down to Jesus' lineage. The Bible gives it to us. Now there are 
some seeming gaps in some of the different chronologies that are there. And so sometimes uh, you could say, for instance, they would use a, a, a grandfather's name and a grandson's name and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they would seem to skip a generation. And then the other place, it would fill in the details. However, the gaps are not enough to significantly impact a period much larger than 4,000 years. Even if you doubled it, the gaps are not significant enough to make for millions and millions of years. And then it text tells us, not the text, but history tells us today, we know that the time of Christ was roughly around 2,000 years ago. So the text does not say the Bible is this amount of time old, but the text does give us. Scripture does definitively give us a starting point or a reference point, let's say, to go from and to work forward. So from that, we know that there are certain things that we, we cannot accept, that are not tolerable, are not allowable. We looked at those, the revelatory view period, the, the day-age period, the, the, uh, the uh, theistic evolution theory or, or concept that you could take, how that was not compatible with Scripture. And looking at those things, in fact, probably the most appealing theory out there, I would say, from a scriptural purist, someone that loves Scripture and, and looks at Scripture and, and doesn't want to argue with Scripture, do damage to Scripture, probably the gap theory, which we talked about, was probably the one that was the most honest, because the gap theory seeks to do no damage to what the Scripture says. And the gap theory proposing that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and that there was something that happened. We looked at that a little bit, not really extensively, but the takeaway, the quick conclusion, was that the text does not really allow for a gap theory. And if there was a gap, the text, the Hebrew language would have used different wordings and markers, but in fact, God defined what a day was, and he gives that to us. So we have to then reconcile, well, how old is the earth? What if the earth then is real old? And, and the Bible says, doesn't seem to allow for that. I go back to this, and if you'll look on the bottom, then there's a spot that says there's unanswered questions. Does anybody in here have unanswered questions? And see how much space I left for you to write your unanswered questions? I, I want to go on record really, really plain here and say, I can't answer all of your questions because I can't answer all of my questions. But I will say this, the Bible, and I've said this before, the Bible does not tell us everything there is to know. It tells us everything we need to know. Let me say that again. The Bible does not tell us everything there is to know. The Bible tells us everything we need to know. So when you ask me how old the earth is, I don't know. I'm not God. <laughs> but I can tell you that Scripture was written as history. It's more than history. It is the living word. And we can stand upon Scripture and we can believe Scripture to be true. And Scripture has never proven to be wrong. Albeit, there are many people that would disregard it and say there's no way 
that the earth could be that young. Now, maybe there is something that we're missing, something that we're not seeing as far as when we're reading Scripture. I, I would give it to you that I could be missing something. In fact, I'm pretty sure that at some point, sometime, we might be missing something. But what I do not accept is that Scripture is wrong. Right. I might be missing something I'm reading in Scripture, but Scripture is not wrong. Yeah. And so if I am wrong, let me be wrong. But Scripture is not wrong. And we talked about this last week, and I, I want to be sure to give to you, there, there is a certain tolerance and a, an allowance that we ought to have for people when it comes to this topic and this subject. Because, for instance, when you go to day six, there's a whole lot of stuff happening in day six. That's a lot of stuff to fit into one day, one 24-hour period of time. But it's impossible for me to come to the text and say, well, that can't happen because naturally it wouldn't have played out that way when so much of the rest of the text of Scripture, and I'm not just talking about Genesis, I'm talking about the whole Old Testament and the whole Old New Testament, has stuff that's impossible for me to believe, and yet it happened. That is the point of Scripture, to prove God. And God says the impossible, and then He turns around and He does the impossible. In my devotions today, I was reading, and I was reading in Isaiah, and in Isaiah, there's a messianic prophecy, I believe it's in chapter 35, and he says that Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind, and he's going to unstop the ears of the deaf, and the lame are going to leap. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 35. John the Baptist comes as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and he comes to Jesus, and he says at the end, he's at the lowest point of his life, and now he needs assurance. He's looking for assurance. God, tell me I didn't do it wrong. Get, tell me again that, I, I, that we got it right. And he sends his disciples while he's in prison and says, tell us, are you the one, or should we look for another? And what does Jesus do? He quotes Isaiah 35. He said, go tell him that the blind see. Go tell him that the deaf hear. Go tell him that the lame walk. <laughs> go tell him, he said, and then he goes on and he quotes other parts of Isaiah, that the gospel is preached to the poor. You know what he was doing? And when Isaiah wrote that, and John testifies of this, the gospel of John. Now, Luke tells the story of John the Baptist having that dialogue. The gospel of John, John writes and says, since the beginning of the world, never has it been known that any one has opened the eyes of the blind. It's never happened. And yet Isaiah is saying that when Messiah comes, he's going to do the impossible. John comes and says, are you the one? And Jesus said, did I not do the impossible? Is there anybody else? Isaiah said, the only one that's going to do this is Messiah. And he just testifies. And then he follows it up and says, blessed is he who is not offended in me. You know what he was telling John? John, you have the privilege of hindsight. And hindsight, you can see the impossible prophecy and the impossible fulfillment proven. You can stand upon that. But blessed is he who is not offended in me. Blessed is the one who can hear the impossible prophecy and still be waiting for it to happen 
but yet believe in God. Because God says, when he ascends up into heaven, I'm going to come again. You know where we're living right now? We are living between the prophetic word of God and the fulfillment of some of the word of God. And he said, blessed is he who is not offended in him. And so what a privilege that is. But how can we have faith for what God says he's going to do? Well, it's because we know he has done what he already said he would do. And if he did that, then he can do this. And so just because we cannot explain it naturally is not a logical reason to say that God could not or didn't do it supernaturally. That's right. 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 So... And, 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 and we want to be careful, though, because we don't want to just use that as a cheap excuse to explain everything away. So we want to look at tonight some true presuppositions in scientific arguments that would go against Scripture or, let's say, be arguments for a very, very old earth. And what we realize is that we are presented in uh, in society today, a lot of bias and a lot of theories without presenting all of the facts. And so tonight, we're going to look at that. And everybody said, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me make this disclaimer. I am just a layman that reads books. I in no way claim to have any knowledge in depth of science. And so I don't understand all of the concepts here, but what I am quoting tonight is coming from degreed, uh, let's say, approved scientists. And so uh, there are not, uh, not all scientists, uh, uh, just because you're an astronomer doesn't believe you believe one way. So we're going to look at these. We're going to look at these. So number one, the first presupposition that we want to look at tonight, and I'm going to give us six or, or let's say seven presuppositions that are going to be massive factors in the age of the earth. The first presupposition is the distant starlight uh, presupposition or the presumption. And you can write some notes here on whatever you want, however much you want here. But the first thing that we're going to start with on the distant starlight presumption is this, that the speed of light has never changed, that the speed of light has never changed. Now, this seems to be the most constant assumption, or when we say a presupposition in a scientific argument, this is acknowledged that it is unprovable, that it is unprovable. So the biggest Thing that has ever gotten me on is the earth young or is the earth old is the distant starlight issue. That stars are millions and millions of light years away. And so in order for them to be that far away, it would have taken millions of years for the light to get here. So light travels at what? 186,000 miles per second. Something like that. So it takes like eight and a half minutes somewhere. That's a ballpark. 
eight and a half minutes. It takes one second for the moonlight to get to the earth. It takes about eight and a half minutes for the sunlight to get to the earth. And the closest star, I think it takes around 4,000 years in light years for them to get to, for the light to get to the earth. So the stars that are millions of years away, therefore the universe, let's say more than millions, billions of light years away. And that is largely what is used to uh, tell us that the universe is that old. Well, the first presumption is that the speed of light has never changed. Now, that makes sense unless you also look at the whole of astronomy where when they get to certain problems, most astronomers have, in today's world, have an evolutionary bent. And so because they believe in evolution, it had to have taken millions of years and billions of years, and there has to be this old time. And so they go to the bias of saying that this is the case, and they say speed of light is constant, but then when there are other laws of science that are not observed, they create other theories to accommodate for those inconsistencies. So, for instance, the Big Bang theory has so many problems, and they add theory upon theory upon theory to try to solve and eradicate the problems in the Big Bang theory. But the Big Bang theory has been, uh, uh, has been faultily or, or, or shown its 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 faulties, whatever you would call its breakdowns, its, uh, uh, its inability to, co to cohesively actually work. And yet they'll make presumptions or, the, or they'll make uh, adjoining theories for that. But for this, there is no other explanation. Speed of light has always been constant. Well, we're presuming, first of all, that the speed of light has always been the same. The second thing that we're presuming is that it, there has to be a natural explanation to a supernatural creation. We believe that God created because God said. Where did the stars come from? They had to come from somewhere. And the Bible tells us that God spoke them into existence specifically on day four, and he spoke the sun and the moon into existence as well. He created those, and we then, in order for us to get to, well, the earth has to be billions and bi or millions of years old, and the universe has to be billions of years old, we then get to a position where we are willing to accept a supernatural creation of stars, but then require a natural mechanism for that light to get to earth. Whereas on day four, God said... Let these be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And so God's purpose in creating on day four was that that day they would begin to be used to tell time and to tell seasons. And at the end of that day, the Bible says God saw it and said it was good. Not it's going to be good, or it will be good, but he said it was good. And his purpose was for uh, uh, that to be able to tell time that day. So if we can have faith to believe that God created the stars and the sun and the moon, then is it really hard to believe 
that he created the sun or the moon or the stars with the light already shining, already reaching for a purpose. And somebody says, well, that can't be because if those stars are millions of years away, then they probably no longer exist. And yet their light is still reaching earth. So perhaps the stars don't even exist anymore and we're not seeing it. Well, that's a good theory, but I don't know anyone that's ever been out there to prove that they're not still there, that they don't still exist. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And you can get on YouTube and you can Google the sound of the stars. And they found that there was a way to tell the stars that we could not see. And that was because there was a cosmic sound that stars emit. And you can get on YouTube and you can, you can find it on the internet. You can find recordings of, of uh, agnostic. These are not people trying to prove creation, but they came to tell us that they discovered that beyond the stars they could see, they have been able to trace or detect stars that make noise. And so they're telling us that there are stars past the ones that we can see. And the way we know that is we can hear them. And yet Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Something pretty awesome. Uh, uh, Louis Giglio did a pretty cool uh, mashup with all of creation uh, worshiping together. So the first presumption is that the speed of light has never changed. But okay, if the speed of light has not changed, that's okay. We can also, if you're going to presume that, then I can presume, okay, that the word of God is true and that God's purpose in creating them was accomplished from the very day that he created them. He did not create Adam. The text tells us he did not create Adam and then wait for him for millions of years to have life. He formed him and then he breathed into his nostrils, nostrils the breath of life or his face, the breath of life. And that day... Adam was not a little child. He was not an infant. He was not a baby. He was a man. He was mature at that day. Eve was mature on that day. And so God could have created the universe in that mature state as he wanted. However, so you say the universe is billions and billions of years old. Let's look at some problems with that thought. The first problem, as I quickly go through, the first one is the recession of the moon. The moon orbits the earth, but the earth spins faster than the moon. The moon has a gravitational pull. And because of that gravitational pull, it causes our oceans to be pulled towards the moon. Thus, we have tides. It's called a tidal recession or whatever. The earth's involvement with the moon, we see the different change in tides. So as the moon goes around the earth, the change in the tidal activity actually causes an exertion of kinetic energy, whatever they say, upon the moon. And they have measured, scientists tell us, that the moon is moving away from the earth every year about one and a half inches. So the moon is moving away from the earth every year about one and a half inches. If we were to go back, 6,000 years, 2,000 years of the time of Christ, from, from Christ to Adam, about 6,000 years, the moon would be 800 feet closer to the earth. 
which in the great span that it is really isn't that much, really doesn't change things that much, except for maybe the tides were bigger back then. But if we were to go back, the universe is billions and billions. What, we're up to 15 billion years old or something like that now. If we were to go back 15 billion years, that's a problem because it only takes one and a half billion years for the moon at one and a half inches a year to come into contact with Earth. And that causes a problem with the universe being that old. So could it be that the moon is actually testifying that the Earth is young? The second thing is the planetary magnetic fields. Each planet in our solar system is known to have strong magnetic fields. If you go back, if those fields were really uh, uh, billions of years old and they were as strong as they are now, uh, th they would have been so strong back then that it would have collapsed, that the, 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 uh, uh, the, the uh, solar system would have collapsed. However, when you do the measurements, the problem they have is that if the universe was as old as they say, they should not have the strength of the magnetic fields that they do. And that is a discrepancy that they cannot reconcile. The next is the spiral galaxies. How many have seen the pictures of the galaxies? And when you look at them, there is a spiral. It seems like there's this spinning, and out of there are these offshoots. And inside the spiral, the line is tighter. And then as it winds around or unwinds, rather, it gets looser on the outside. We've observed that those galaxies are in motion. They are in spiral. But what we have also observed is that the inner part of those galaxies spin at a faster rate than the outer portion of those galaxies, which means if the earth was as many billions of years old as they would have said, at the rate that those galaxies are spinning, they would have spun so tightly that when we photograph them, they would just almost look like a cloud disk. There would be no definitive lines in them. And so actually the explanation for a spiral galaxy is not that long ago, as opposed to long, long, long ago. The final one is comets. Comets are debris that go around the sun, and when they get close to the sun, there is material that is burned up, and as that material burns, it shoots off what we call a tail, and you can see the tail on the comet. Scientists agree that a typical comet only has, now there's gives and takes, but a typical comet only has enough material to last 100,000 years. And after that, it would be totally burned up and there would be no more comets. So just by that alone, they would say that the only explanation for that is that the universe has to be less than 100,000 years old. That's a far, far cry from 15 or 16 billion years old. So these are problems within the scientific world that we keep out of the textbooks because they don't have an answer for them yet. But there are astronomers that are looking at them saying, maybe the Bible is more accurate than somebody's bent 
who says it has to be billions of years old. Let's go to the next point. The next point beyond daylight or a distant starlight is the geological columns, let's say. The first problem we have with the geological columns is that the assumption is that of circular reasoning because we age the column by what material is found in the column. So we have a geological column. And you would say, well, how do you know that this strata versus this strata versus this strata versus this strata is this many years old? Well, one of the ways that they judge it, one of the ways that they measure it is by what they find in it. And one of the, well, you say, okay, but how do you know what you found in this column is this many years old? Well, the way they know how it's that old is by where they found it in the geological column. And so you have a circular reasoning that is reinforcing itself, and it is on a bias that says that the columns are very old, that the earth is very old, all of the strata is very old. Interesting thing, all animals are found in an earlier layer, and we find humans at a higher layer. And so therefore, they come to the presumption that humans must have evolved from the animals and they must have come a long, long time after the animals. However, there are other presumptions, and that is this. When you go to the Grand Canyon, one of the greatest wonders of the world, one of the biggest natural displays of the geological column to, to your eye. When you stand there and you look at all that stuff, it's very beautiful. And, and, and the, uh, the organization is Genesis History does a great job with this. You can Google some of their stuff, find it on YouTube, on their social media. Those geological columns are presumed to be millions and millions of years old. And <clears throat> I was watching one of their videos and, the, and, the, and the, the doctor was there and he was at the Colorado River and he shows how in the last 200 years, they've photographed the Colorado River and there have been 25 massive floods that have come through there. And on each of those floods, not one of those floods has moved. They photographed a certain area of the rapids. Not one of those floods has displaced any of those boulders or those rocks that are in the Colorado River at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And he says it doesn't make sense because if the Colorado River, as other scientists presume, carved the Grand Canyon out over millions and millions of years, why have these floods that I think he said, not 25 floods, but they are 20 times more the force, the normal force of the river. Why have those floods not even moved a boulder in the middle of the river, let alone etched out anything else? None of the, none of the, uh, uh, the banks of the river have receded or changed or, or, or moved in the last 200 years. He says, when you look at it, what, what it would require for this to happen is not a little bit of water over a long period of time, but the model actually suggests the reverse. The model suggests that it would be a massive amount of water over a little bit of time that would actually cause the Grand Canyon. It would be more akin to like a lake that broke its dam and all of that. He said, we're not talking about a flood that's 20 times, 20 sometimes past the force of the Colorado River. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of time past 
the Colorado River. He said the next thing, when you look at the Grand Canyon, it does not testify to it being old. It testifies to something happening rather quickly. He said because if it was millions of years that eroded the layers and everything together, he said as those layers peel back and reveal themselves, we should be seeing canyons within canyons. We should be seeing curved and crooked lines of erosion and compaction and wind blowing. He said, but instead, what do you see in the Grand Canyon? You see straight line after straight line after straight line after straight line. He says that does not suggest millions and millions of years. It suggests something catastrophic and it suggests the natural laws of sediment and settling. How else do you get balance? How else do you get straightness in those lines? And so there are a host of geologists that say the geology is not testifying to a long time ago. It's testifying maybe to something that could be way more recent and something that was catastrophic that happened rather quickly. Let's go to the next thing. Radioactive dating. Radioactive dating. This is above my pay grade, but I do know that certain elements, as the books say, give off lead isotopes at a given rate each year and are used to measure decay. By extension, they date rocks and they date the Earth's crust by how much lead isotopes are given off at a certain rate and that measures decay. But there are two massive assumptions, presumptions, that factor into the formula. The first presumption of radioactive dating is this. The first presumption is that there were no lead deposits in the beginning of creation. The second presumption is this, that the rate of decay has remained the same throughout history. We know that there's no way to prove either one of those, and we know that it is a massive assumption to take that stance. The next thing is carbon-14 dating. And if the radioactive dating doesn't open the door, the carbon-14 dating does. Because the carbon-14 dating measures carbon, C14, in living things that are dead. And once those things die, the carbon begins to decrease. And so when they go back and they measure something based on the amount of carbon in there, they then say it is such and such amount of time old because it's been decaying so long. Carbon exists, there's C12 and there's C14. I don't understand all of this. But if I would just explain it to you, there, has, there was the mathematic formula was uh, 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 written by Dr. William Libby. And <clears throat> there's a ratio. Carbon-12 does not change, but carbon-14 does once something dies and it begins to decay. And somewhere in their formula, they had to, for their measuring systems to work with carbon-14 dating, there had to be equilibrium in the atmosphere among carbon so that carbon does not change so that then we have a fixed standard by which we can go and measure it. Let me put it in, in, in layman's term. 
if an inch always means an inch, then we can measure from here to there. But if an inch has changed throughout history, well, then you can't go back and read and they say it's that long, whatever. It's not going to say anything. It's sort of the same thing with carbon. There has to be equilibrium. This same doctor in his original work said that if the universe was created and carbon is something that is emitted and put off uh, uh, by living creatures, if it was emitted, then it would take approximately 20 to 30,000 years, 20,000 to 30,000 years for the world's existence, for the world to achieve equilibrium so that we could actually measure carbon. Now, he said, we know because of evolution, we know the earth is old. We know we've already achieved equilibrium, except the problem was that he himself noted that the atmosphere did not appear to be in equilibrium. So the man that created carbon dating said it requires equilibrium for carbon dating to actually work, and yet he also acknowledged problematically that the atmosphere did not appear to be in equilibrium. His answer to that was there had to be air in his measurements, and his tools must have been faulty, and yes, the world has to be in equilibrium. So the presumption of carbon dating is that our atmosphere has achieved equilibrium. In fact, <clears throat> there's things that testify that perhaps that is not the case. And if we are in equilibrium now, who's to say that the earth is not only just a little more than 30,000 years old, we're not talking millions and millions or billions of years old. Here we see the moon <laughs> to the earth couldn't be larger than maybe uh, uh, one and a half billion years old. So somebody's calculations, comets 100,000 years old, equilibrium 30,000 years old, somebody's calculations are not right. Let's look at the amount of the salt in the sea. Well, the amount of salt in the sea they measure and they can guesstimate, and so therefore the earth has to be such and such years, millions of years old. But the presumption is this, that, that the sea started with no salt in it at the beginning. That's presumption number one. And the second presumption is that the rate of deposits of salt into the sea have not changed, and they have always been fixed. One big factor that we'll look at, and that is what happens if there was a global flood, how much of these measurements are changed. The next is the measure or the amount of sand in the world. Sand, we know, is particles that are crushed together. We are presuming, though, that creation began with no grains of sand in existence. That's a massive presumption to say that God created the world or that the earth was formed without sand in existence in order for that to be uh, uh, an adequate measurement. By the way, I, I mentioned it last week. I think the city um, outside of Saugatuck, I can't even remember the name of the town, but Saugatuck, Michigan. If you've ever been up to Lake Michigan, that Saugatuck, Douglas area, uh, there is an entire city 
that is under sand, and that city is less than uh, uh, less than a hundred years old. And you can pay money to get on the dune buggies, and they'll take you around on your tour, and they will drive you over the top. Well, for liability's sake, not over the top of the buildings, but around there. And sometimes, depending on the season, how the winds blow, you can see the corners of the tops of the buildings, and they'll tell you, okay, that building, no massive high rises 100 years ago, but that building it was, it was a little bit, is, is two or three or four stories tall, and you can see that there. And in the last 100 years, there has been enough sand blow in from Lake Michigan, from the shore in the Lake Michigan, enough sand for it to engulf and encompass an entire community. And the reason why nobody lives in that town anymore is because of the sand, by the way. That's, that's the sand literally pushed them out. So we look at that, how massive that sand comes. Where did that sand come from? And how, how quick is it there from the dunes in Indiana, whatever, it blows over that. So there's some things that have taken place rapidly, rapidly. Going back to the geological column, uh, they've already gone down. If you would study things like uh, Mount St. Helens that blew up. Uh, when did Mount St. Helen go? Does anybody remember that? When was it? 1980? Okay. Are you sure? So they've been able to look at that uh, and go back, and some of that stuff doesn't make sense. He's sure. Google says it. It's, it's, it's absolute. No, he's right. And so uh, they go back and they measure that, and ironically, they get from their bias deductions and measurements, old earth, old earth conclusions from something that has been observed in a lifetime. Now, the last thing that I'll leave you with is the global flood factor. The Bible says, and we're not, we're not going to look at this now, we're not going to give defense for it or argument for it, but the Bible says that God destroyed the world with a flood. Now, I'll give you the, I'll jump way ahead. I don't believe that it was a local flood. I don't believe that it was just a few people that died. I believe that it was the whole earth. I believe it was catastrophic. I believe it was a reset. There's so many things that break down if, if, if you don't allow the Bible to say what the Bible says. And so God made Noah build an ark 100 years. He built that ark and he sent animals. If God was going to bring animals of each kind, two by two of the unclean, seven by seven of the clean and the fowl of the air, if God was going to bring them supernaturally into the boat to survive a local flood, God probably could have in a hundred years had them migrate to the other part of the earth. But he built a boat and he talks about catastrophic devastation. So if the Bible says that the fountains of the deep opened up, the Bible says that there were things. This was not just a nice little drizzle like we had uh, this morning or yesterday or whatever. This was catastrophic that came and fell on this earth. What happened? If we go and get it, we'll look at all that stuff. The biggest thing for us to believe in a global flood is when Peter in his epistle, he writes two short, very short epistles, and he refers to and appeals to 
us being ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he goes back to what took place in the flood. And if the flood was only a local flood, and it was only for a few, then when Jesus Christ comes back, his coming back is only going to affect a few. And that is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible teaches. And so let's just say, okay, we'll be open-minded Open-minded here. There are things we don't know. But what would explain a Grand Canyon? Evolutionists say that the Colorado River, millions and millions of years, eroded the Grand Canyon. The problem is, is that the Colorado River flows north into the Grand Canyon and south out of the Grand Canyon. At the north part of the Grand Canyon, the rim is higher than the south part of the Grand Canyon. So you're telling me that the river flowed uphill to erode something to flow downhill. The river would have flown, flowed around a high point. But what does fit a model for a massive erosion is a massive lake or a massive series of lakes. And all of a sudden, it overflows its banks, perhaps from rain, perhaps from something else. And now you have this massive torrent that goes rushing through, pushing pressure that is almost uncomprehendable, pushing through there. And you get animals stuck in sediment and things at high. It's, how else do you explain fish fossils at the top of the mountain? But a catastrophic flood, if we would just allow our minds to go to where the text actually says what took place, a catastrophic flood could have explained a lot of things. The displacement of sands in the middle of deserts where there's no water. A catastrophic flood could explain a Grand Canyon. A catastrophic flood could explain the even layers of sediment in a certain area around the world where when the waters receded, things settled down. Heavier things settle on the bottom. Weaker things settle on the top. A catastrophic flood could explain a whole lot of things. It could explain an ice age. It could have explained a lot of different things. It could have explained the eradication of a lot of animals, of a lot of dinosaurs that are extinct today of a lot of different things. People say, well, it's not possible that one man and his three sons and their wives could have been the, uh, uh, been the sole humans to repopulate the earth. Well, actually, if you run the population numbers, if the earth is really millions and millions of years old and uh, humans are as old on earth as as they want to say we are, the earth right now should be overrun with a population. But actually it makes more sense. The numbers numerically fit right now if there was a human reset by God and from one family came all of the people of this world. What I'm trying to present to you today is that there are just as logical conclusions that the earth is young as there are that the earth is old. And here is the conclusion of all these things tonight. I would conclude with this. 
here's what we do know. And that's this. Finite, fallible man is giving us their best guess while making unprovable assumptions on how old the earth is. Finite, fallible man is giving us their best guess at how old the earth is while making unprovable assumptions. A large majority of those people are also telling us that God does not exist and he did not create the universe. So my question to you is, are you prepared to take the word of God at face value and put faith in it? Because even if you ascribe to the day-age theory or to the gap theory, it still would pose logistical problems that would have you in contradiction to an atheistic, agnostic, evolutionary-style model. And we know that theistic evolution is not an option because if theistic evolution is an option, then God's Word is faulty and it's wrong. And if we can't believe God for the supernatural in what we don't know, and, and, and if we can't believe God in what we can explain, then we'll never believe God in what we can know and what we, we can understand and what He can teach us here. So do I have unanswered questions? Absolutely I have unanswered questions. I don't understand everything, and there will be times where we will discover things, and we may not know how to reconcile all of that. But what I am convinced of here today is that God's Word, the Word of God, the Holy Scripture that I hold here has proven itself time and time and time again, and we can trust in the Word of God. We may be missing something. There may be something in there that we don't understand, but God's Word is true, and we can stand on God's Word. And as a believer, don't let some educated intellectual that is standing on a mountain of assumptions convince you that God is not real and that God has not worked. Amen. I would rather be in the company of the blind man when the Pharisees came and said, is this man a sinner? He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was born blind and now I see. He was saying, what I do know is I've just witnessed and I am living the impossible. And you can't explain it, and I can't explain it, but God. Hallelujah. And so our faith has to be in the Word of God. The same people that are saying the earth is billions or millions of years old and the universe is billions of years old are telling us all kinds of things. They're telling us that male is not male and female is not female and wrong is not right or, or not wrong is not wrong and right is not right and you can't tell me this. And, and everything has flipped upside down on its head. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Amen. Can you stand together with me tonight?
I want to I reiterate something, and that is this, that there are questions we do not have answered. And some people in their journey and looking through things haven't had access maybe to all of the information and the material and the rebuttals and the defenses that maybe I have or others have today that we have, I should say, or even some of the things I presented here to you. And so they were trying to reconcile. They were trying to grapple with things like uh, Dake and Old Schofield, those, those, those most recent uh, study Bibles in the last hundred years made the gap theory really, really prominent and prevalent. They were trying to hold the scripture and reconcile some other things. The problem is they are being sold uh, uh, a lot of presumptions that they did not have to reconcile. You and I don't have to defend the word. It will defend itself. Amen. We just have to stand on the word, believe in the word, and put our faith in the word. Yeah. Amen. Lord, I thank you tonight, God, for your church. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your presence. And I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that you would give us a boldness, a boldness of faith. God, that we can believe everything that you've done for us, every miracle that you've provided, God, has been to increase our faith. And I pray that our faith would be increased. We don't have all the answers. We may not be doing everything right and holding everything right, but one thing we are sure of, and that is that your word is true, that you are true, and that our faith cannot stand in the wisdom of man, but it must stand in the power of God. And I pray that that would be our prayer tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Somebody clap your hands unto the Lord tonight. Amen. 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 Now, I know... I got into some deep stuff there over the last five weeks. Is anybody enjoying this? Are you at least enjoying this? Is this okay? Okay, I know we don't do this all the time, but we are going to get into some more deeper theology things coming up just to give you some real big topics. Humankind, that's a big one we're going to talk about. First mention of work, gender roles, Sabbath, marriage, sexuality, sin, temptation, Satan, uh, nakedness, the first mention of sacrifice, judgment, angelic beings. We're going to get into all these kind of things. The flood, the world lost in wickedness, all kinds of stuff. And I could go on and on and on. We've got a lot of lists. So there's a lot of good things here that are going to affect, I think, how we think about this. So this is midweek Bible study. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you'll keep uh, staying tuned into this as well. Amen. Why don't you greet one another? We'll see you Sunday morning. Pray for our quizzers as they go to state finals Friday and Saturday. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.